Good afternoon and welcome to the Hudson Institute. My name is Hussein Haqqani and I'm the Director for South and Central Asia here at the Hudson Institute. I would like to welcome all of you uh, for what we hope will be an interesting and exciting conference on innovation and healthcare in India. Um, Hudson, of course, is a think tank that has existed uh, since the 1960s. Uh, we basically try to examine issues from the point of view of uh, 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 looking at trends as well as looking at future prospects. Uh, we believe in a strong America that leads the world. We be believe in free markets. But at the same time, we look for policy options uh, that can advance bigger goals uh, in various parts of the country. Uh, Hudson launched the India and Globalization Initiative in March 2014 uh, with healthcare and innovation among five areas of our focus. Our annual reports every summer look at issues of health, innovation, defense, economic reforms, and trade in India. We firmly believe that India is an emerging global power, and we want the United States and the rest of the world to engage as effective partners in India's rise. Our analysis of India's trends and projections reflect our hopes, our expectations, and our aspirations. When we critique policies and propose changes, we do so as friends. India, a country of 1.2 billion people, has a GDP of $7.9 trillion on PPP basis, and it has one of the fastest growing economies in the world, yet it only spends 4.7% of its GDP on healthcare, 4.7. In comparison, Brazil and South Africa spend 8.3 and 8.8, which is almost twice the percentage as a proportion of GDP of India. Even Nepal, which is much smaller and has a much smaller GDP, spends 5.8% of a percent of its GDP on healthcare. Uh, India's spending on healthcare is uh, less than half the average for OECD countries, which is 9.3%. Uh, the United States spends 16.9% of its GDP on health. This low government spending means India, uh, uh, now, now in addition to low spending as a proportion of GDP, India also has much less government spending on, uh, on healthcare. Uh, it has one of the highest out-of-pocket spending rate globally. According to World Health Organization, only 33% of Indian healthcare expenditure came from government resources, while the remaining amounted, uh, while the, uh, of the remaining private spending, 86% was out-of-pocket. India has only one bed for 1,050 patients in contrast to one bed for 85 patients in Japan, and one for 350 in the United States. India has 0.7 doctors and 1.5 nurses per 1,000 people. That is drastically lower than the World Health Organization average of 2.5 doctors and nurses per 1,000 people. India ranks 80th. Now, I'm, I know I'm overwhelming you with statistics, but this is just to set the stage. We will, have, we will listen to our, uh, uh, our uh, experts carefully. But before we get to them, let's see what is the nature of the beast. So let me describe the elephant before we start dealing with its uh, specific parts as the trunk or, uh, or its uh, 
um, its uh, various other components. So India ranks 80th out of 117 countries in the 2015 Global Hunger Index. Uh, and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, which are neighbors of India, rank much higher. There has been some improvement in India's health indicators in the last few years with a lowering of infant and maternal mortality rates. India's life expectancy of 66, while improving significantly, still ranks 14 years lower than the OECD average of 80. Population having access to clean water now stands at almost 90%, which is a major improvement. However, population with access to uh, improved sanitation stands at less than 40% of the total. Now, Prime Minister Modi, of course, was elected uh, two years ago uh, with the expectation that he will drastically change India's direction away from uh, the socialist policies of the preceding years uh, towards a more market-oriented approach uh, and one that will attract a lot of uh, private investment, including foreign direct investment. Uh, the Modi government announced a national health policy which set as its goal uh, the provision of modern health services to all Indians. But it is not something that the Indian government can do it on its own and the Modi government is aware of that. If every Indian is to be provided health care, the government will need to support the private sector, both domestic and foreign to bolster India's key health indicators with significant improvements in infrastructure, financing, and research and development. And none of those things would be possible without significant changes in India's policy framework. For those of you who are interested in learning more uh, about India's healthcare and what we think India needs to do to improve its indicators, uh, we are happy to announce the launch today of our report entitled India's Health Under Modi, Agenda for the Next Two Years. It's a very important report that we have prepared. I think copies should be available as you exit. Uh, it's an effort by us and various experts, both inside Hudson and outside, with whose help we have tried to uh, look into the uh, future, short-term future of the next two years and say, what are the concrete steps India could take to try and improve on its current indicators and get on track for the major changes that Prime Minister Modi promised but is having difficulty in delivering in full. Um, this report reviews the current state of healthcare in India, the initiatives of the Modi government, and the challenges and opportunities in the health sector over the next few years. I hope that you will pick a copy and will look at it and examine its findings. We are happy to have feedback. I'm sure there are people in this room. The great thing about democracies is that everybody has an opinion in addition to having, in fact, everybody has, a, has the right to multiple opinions, uh, even though each one of us has only one vote. Um, and so we would be very happy to have feedback, especially from those who are connected to this sector themselves. Now let me introduce the first two panelists uh, for our uh, discussion today. Uh, the first panel will provide an overview of innovation and healthcare in the Indian context. Uh, the second panel will then move forward and look at specific initiatives of the private sec sector within this rubric. So for, for our first panel, I am very grateful uh, to Dr. Amit Kapoor and Dr. Ranjana Smetacek 
who are both experts in uh, their respective fields. Dr. Amit Kapoor, to my immediate left, is President and CEO of the Indian Council on Competitiveness and also Honorary Chairman at the Institute for Competitiveness in India. He sits on the boards of competitiveness initiatives in Mexico, the Netherlands, and France. Um, I would like Dr. Kapoor to begin by introducing to our audience what the uh, Competitiveness Institute does as well. It would be useful. Now, Dr. Ranjana Smetacek, who is sitting uh, to the left of Dr. Kapoor, which is not necessarily a reflection of her political opinions, <laughs> is former Director General of the Organization of Pharmaceutical Producers of India and is currently a consultant here in Washington, D.C. Prior to that, she was with Monsanto Industries and was Director of Global Biotech Acceptance and worked on projects in Europe, Africa, and South America. I would like uh, Dr. Kapoor to go first, uh, a 10 minute introductory presentation, and then we go to Dr. Uh, Smithacek, and then after that, we open it for a robust discussion. For, uh, so let's begin, Dr. Kapoor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, it's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Uh, in fact, as Institute for Competitiveness, we are a think tank, uh, which is an affiliate of the Institute for Strategy and Competitiveness at Harvard, and we have a fairly broad program on uh, uh, research pertaining to urban areas and uh, what I call cities and states and so on and so forth. And we focus on areas like healthcare and uh, internet and uh, I would rather say like automotives and et cetera. Uh, but having said that, let, let me just quickly dive into what I really see as healthcare innovation ecosystem in India. Uh, if we talk, uh, look at the numbers that Ambassador was sharing, uh, these are some very interesting numbers, but we have to dig deeper. Uh, in terms of like how India is performing at the various levels. In fact, India, one, cannot be looked at as a singular animal. It has to be looked at as an animal which has different parts. It's a different set of states which actually come together. And we see huge levels of variation that actually exist within the level of states itself. Uh, but if you really look at some set of numbers, uh, India actually, when you talk about hunger index and so on and so forth, there are some other numbers which actually give a startling picture about the reality that we face. Uh, we are ranked number 98 on the Social Progress Index, which is more uh, a thing wherein we are saying that you have to look at uh, things beyond GDP and so on and so forth, and health being one of the biggest burdens. Uh, if you really look at other set of numbers in terms of uh, how sanitation is actually having an impact, of course, the whole Swachh Bharat Abhiyan, which is a great initiative, and I think it is imperative that India needs to focus on it. Uh, but then there was this uh, uh, earthquake that actually happened in Nepal, and wherein about 7,000 people died. Uh, but if you really look at back home in India, you find something very startling, that close to about 7,000 kids die every week because of diarrhea. And that is actually a sanitation issue or a healthcare issue itself. Go deeper into the level of availability of doctors uh, to such things. Uh, there are close to about 80% of the doctors cater to just about 20% of the uh, people in the country. Uh, so that means there is a severe issue in terms of availability of doctors, availability of talent, and so on and so forth. Uh, but beyond that as well, uh, if you really look at it, the issues of healthcare access and issues of availability of healthcare are not only driven by what you would call as the industry per se uh, or the, the market distortions, but it is also driven by huge infrastructural bottlenecks. It's a, it's a question of access that we actually have to understand. And when I say access, it's about access because of travel. To a, to a, uh, to a certain extent, if you're actually living in a city, it can take you up to about two hours to get to a hospital. 
uh, if there is a certain incident or an emergency incident that actually happens. could take you up to two hours. And in villages, it can take you up to about six hours on an average. If you're living in Himachal Pradesh or some places in Ladakh, it can take you multiple number of hours. So if you are actually having a cardiac incident, the prognosis could be that you're going to be dead by the time you actually get care. So what we are really saying here is that India has a very different reality on the ground level in terms of like how it has to be managed. And so if we really have to manage this, how do we really look at it? We have to look at innovation from a perspective of multiple sets of areas. Uh, so there are various pillars that we would actually have to touch on. And those pillars do not necessarily mean just government. It has to come from the private sector. It has to come from uh, the patient care groups or uh, whatever. To begin with, in fact, uh, the first thing that we have to do is really look at spends on R&D itself. Uh, there was some number in terms of healthcare that was actually being talked about, like India just spends about close to 4% of its GDP on health. But there's another figure which is absolutely com combinatorial onto this. Like if you really combine it, you understand that there is a lacuna that exists on innovation ecosystem. We just spend close to about 0.8% of our GDP on innovation or R&D activities. If that's the number, uh, that means we are just not focusing on innovation per se. If you really look at uh, the whole performance of India in terms of like how it is performing on patenting behavior, we are one of the smallest in the world. Uh, so why does it, and on a per capita basis, it actually becomes fairly abysmal. What do we do to really get this right? Can we actually look at the ecosystem in terms of uh, how the educational institutions work? Uh, I, I think we, we do appreciate a lot of institutions that actually exist there, but then they, they are appreciated because of the quality of students that they get in, but you are not really appreciate, they cannot be appreciated because of the quality of output or research that they actually give. In fact, from my point of view, and I think uh, this is also going live, so a lot of people will hate me for saying it, but then I always say that IITs or even the Indian Institute of Sciences or whatever, they could actually be touted as non-performing assets of the country. Uh, and when I say non-performing assets, it's because the output that you actually see in terms of research is absolutely abysmal. Uh, the numbers, if you look at the numbers in terms of like publications and whatever, uh, I think uh, then we can actually say the reason for this non-performing asset is its faculty who's absolutely non-performing, does not contribute, uh, does not create uh, what you would call as uh, enterprises and so on and so forth. Uh, so within the research ecosystem, there is a severe lacuna that exists. So how do we really create policy that we actually in, uh, what you call, push out this research ecosystem? The second thing that we have to really look at is how do we really push uh, innovative business models to this arena. In fact, the next big thing that has to happen in India is about innovation in the business models or innovation in processes. Uh, today, India is definitively like what is happening within the West. They, it cannot get replicated in India. You have to find solutions for India. You have to find solutions in terms of really saying that what is it uh, that I can do for a low resource setting. India is a clearly a low resource setting uh, country. So you create models for that. In fact, there are examples after examples as to how that has actually happened. I think if you really look at the complete set of industry, the, the, there is a severe focus on the pharmaceutical industry without realizing that you have to focus on care delivery as well. If you're not focusing on care delivery, you're actually going to get things wrong. Uh, so how do you actually get that care delivery process right? Uh, this is where you have to create delivery models which are unique and different. Uh, see, an example for, uh, uh, one example which I feel is one of the finest in the country is Narayana Healthcare. And if you really look at it from a brutal uh, economic perspective, how is Narayana Healthcare able to give uh, the care that it is able to give at such a price? It is because of asset utilization. So when you talk about asset utilization, how they're actually giving uh, healthcare in the night, 
uh, between those godforsaken hours from 10 o'clock in the night to 5 o'clock in the morning, they're able to utilize that asset or diagnostic equipment to really give something very interesting. So we have to look at those kind of models. Or when you talk about Vatsalya as an enterprise, which looks at tier three cities and says that I'm actually going to build hospitals and cater to a certain level of disease segments, and then pushes it out. So when you're operating in tier three cities, it is actually talking about prenatal, postnatal care. It is actually talking about diabetes. It is talking about renal disease and so on and so forth. So they are looking at some very specific disease segments. Uh, having said that, well, what India needs to do in terms of like when you're talking about innovation in the system, and when I say it's a delivery process, you have to look deeper in terms of saying as to how the disease pattern is going to change. I think a lot of times we are just focusing on a certain set of disease patterns, which could be archaic. We, we are looking at some archaic numbers. But there is, uh, and the government actually works in a very slow pace. And this is where, when I say innovation is required, you need innovation at the level of bureauc bureaucracy as well. I think India suffers from the uh, most defining bureaucratic burden in the world. And how do we change that? In fact, I say the last remaining relic of the Raj, or the, what, what was left of the British, is actually the bureaucracy. And how do we uh, dismantle, or how do we change it? Uh, in fact, uh, there could be a situation where bureaucracy hates this statement. But the question is, they are actually the biggest lag in the system. because, uh, And there is, of course, like when you talk about market-based solutions, you have to find a solution that you train these leftists, what I call as a bureaucratic people, because they're trained as control people. They're not trained as enabling people. Uh, so because the British trained them as control mechanism people or whatever, and we are just training them in the same way. So how do I innovate on the bureaucratic practices and change that model? If I don't change the bureaucracy, because it's, it becomes a governance issue as well at that level. So that is, that's the step that we have to take over a period of time. Uh, moving ahead, I think, so when we talk about industry in terms of like how business models can actually happen uh, or how... Uh, institutions can be taken care of or how academics look at it. But the third thing that we really have, or one of the bigger things, or one of the pillars that we have to look at, is how do we strengthen the IP regime? I think there is an undue debate that actually happens in India, and wrongfully so, that focuses on that you have to have open source or whatever, and you just try to mix a lot of things. The question is that if you do not have a very strong IP regime, innovation is not going to happen, because you're not able to protect yourself. Because IP is one of the biggest things that, that is that drives competitive advantage for enterprises. If I'm not driving that competitive advantage, uh, or if I'm not able to create a competitive advantage, if I'm not able to protect it, why should an enterprise come in and give you the best level of care to the best level of medicines, or so on and so forth? So strengthening the IP regime is going to be very, very important for the future. If we don't do that, it's actually going to be one of the killer aspects. And Having said this, there, there is one very big issue that we have to look at from an innovation perspective and competitiveness perspective, and that is about trust and competitiveness. Uh, I think there is a severe lack of trust that actually happens within different set of actors within the system. Uh, and if that trust is lacking, uh, so how do we take policy action that trust actually is enabled for enterprises to actually do well or collaborate and things? If I am able to create clusters, uh, within the U.S., or if you've seen clusters within the United States in terms of like how pharmaceutical industry or how healthcare industry is actually done or created those clusters, like from New York to Boston, some of the most amazing enterprises actually exist or research enterprises exist in this area. So how do we create those set of systems there? So it is actually dependent on trust. So trust is the element which needs to be put in. And how can we do that? We can actually do that through IP and so on and so forth. So if you, if you really look at uh, the whole paradigm, uh, we have to look at... Uh, what you call steps from policy, wherein we look at policy in terms of saying that push the R&D spends, 
look at systems or mechanisms where this trust happens. Uh, third is that you have to understand that you have to look at innovation from a state-level perspective. It cannot be looked at a country-level perspective uh, because states will have to create uh, the ecosystems for themselves itself. Uh, in fact, uh, some set of numbers here. States which are doing exceedingly well in India, we know definitively that you have Maharashtra, Tamil Nadu, Gujarat, which do, which do exceedingly well. And these are the same set of places where innovation is also the highest, the entrepreneurial activity is also the highest, and this is where the educational institutions also perform the highest. Uh, just to uh, what you call add on to this point, if you really look at the emergence of places like uh, Bangalore, uh, Hyderabad, and Chennai, uh, and three distinct states, that is Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, and Andhra, uh, these three institutions, or these three states actually happened because of a very strong educational ecosystem that got created. And that is where a lot of talent actually became available. So how do we really look at it? Uh, and having said it, so there, there, is, there are states outside this uh, three or four states that we are talking about where performance of educational institutions or nationally ranked institutions is also missing. So we need to set this process right, focus on educational institutions, collaborate between the industry and the academia, and try to do something around it. If we don't do it, then I think we'll still be talking about the same set of things in the next 10 years as well. And that, that's some initial set of remarks uh, from my side. Thank you very much. I mean, there's a lot in that for us to digest, and I'm going to try and see if I can use my summarizing skills uh, honed over a long period of time uh, for, 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 for the audience. You know, most important, you emphasized innovation. Uh, and how India actually needs to get into that. Uh, you linked it to the IP regime, but at the same time you made the point that uh, innovation may be better handled at the state level than the federal level. However, that raises a question. Uh, you can ponder over it when we come back. Uh, the IP regime is essentially a, a central regime. It's a federal regime. And so how would states be able to innovate without a significant uh, willingness of the federal government to change the intellectual property regime. Uh, the second point you made, which I thought made a lot of sense, was um, that the pharmaceutical uh, 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 sector, as well as the care delivery sector, both need to be attended to simultaneously in terms of their, how that they adapt to India. Um, we can have a discussion on all of that as well. I'm sure there are people in the audience who may have questions uh, and issues on the pharmaceutical side. You gave a few examples, a good, few good examples on the care delivery side about, for example, innovative ideas that, you know, if you have diagnostic equipment, this, that, etc., cetera, uh, in, in, invert the usage, uh, uh, nighttime usage, if somebody is willing to go and have their MRI in the middle of the night rather than in the day, they can do it more cheaply, etc. Great ideas, some of which probably may actually make sense beyond India uh, for people to think about and may have come in. Then comes the question of uh, the bureaucracy. So that's the third point I think you've made. Um, I think in the discussion, and there are people here, I see faces who have dealt with Indian bureaucracy and, 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 uh, and have lived and have survived that experience um, uh, to have lived to tell the tale. How, huh? And how do, how do you how do you change? I understand that it needs to be re-educated, but 70 years, several generations now, three generations at least of bureaucrats uh, in in terms of age clusters, um, those trained by the British, those trained like the British, and those trained 
by those who were trained by uh, trained only by the British. British. Yeah. So, so how do you change that? Uh, we would be very happy. Uh, we have people in the audience who might consider assisting and helping uh, uh, us do it. We would be very happy to go and try. We're already considering a program where we can actually get new generation Indian members of parliaments to think differently than the old generation politicians. Could we do something like that with the bureaucrats? Would that make sense? Uh, it may need a lot more money than uh, is available, but the U.S. government spends a lot of money, for example, on exposing Indian uh, public personalities to America and culture-wise, should that be directed towards making them think differently than in a very structured socialist manner? So those are questions that I'm leaving for you for the second round after we've already heard from Dr. Ranjana Smetha Chek. Now, I know that you didn't deliberately uh, set us out uh, to have difficulty pronouncing your uh, uh, your last name, but, uh, but I hope I passed the test. <laughs> And uh, it's, it, it would be a pleasure to hear from you, uh, uh, Ranjana, on the more specific ideas that you have for getting us going. Thank you, um, Ambassador Hakani. Uh, to begin with, um, I should state I'm not doctor. So um, thank you for that elevation, but uh, I have not got a doctorate. So uh, I, I will try uh, to um, add to what Ambassador Hakani, what Dr. Kapoor have said, and be careful also not to repeat some of those things which are also in my notes. Um, in my view, we need, these are two separate conversations, health, access to healthcare in India and innovation in India. Many times it's thought that diluting IPR and therefore limiting innovation will somehow advance access to healthcare, and I don't think that's true. Um, you know, we've already heard from Ambassador Hakani about uh, the poor, the low spend, uh, while, as he mentioned, while uh, the, GD, the spend uh, is only 4.7% of GDP on Indian healthcare, the government spend is even lower, just one third of that. So, um, uh, in essence, we are spending uh, government is spending 1.4% of GDP, which is really abysmal. About a year ago, the Lancet's editor-in-chief said, I don't see any new policies, any new ideas, any significant public commitment, and most importantly, no financial commitment to the health sector. If Prime Minister Modi does not tackle health, India's economy is not sustainable. And I think this is a pretty scathing indictment. And um, indeed, let's look at what the promises that were made when Prime Minister Modi took office in summer of 2014. The BJP manifesto certainly talked about insurance for all, health insurance for all. There was talk about certainly reducing out-of-pocket spend. Uh, there was assurance of free drug services, free diagnostic services, and we've seen a good deal of disappointment. The uh, plan for uh, universal health assurance sort of went away with the very short-lived first uh, health minister, which was appointed. So, you know, he stayed a few months and with him went this plan. And um, uh, Ambassador Hakani referenced the draft national health policy, we, and we did see a draft indeed in the in 
the start of 2015, this draft was put out. It included input from several stakeholders and consultations had been factored in. And um, they, uh, of course, they asked for a budget and they projected a certain spend over the next five years. And what we saw was, you know, I'm just quoting from a Reuters report. It said, Prime Minister Modi puts the brakes on this healthcare policy. We didn't hear what he's, what somebody's proposing instead. So you can say that, you know, we can't spend this amount, but what is it that we can spend? So it was as if this has been closed down without an alternative. So I would say that, um, you know, I, I think this, these promises at the moment are broken promises. We've got a ways to go. So um, in the meantime, we do see sort of some quick fixes, uh, you know, like price capping of drugs or compulsory licensing. And this is sort of seen as, you know, potentially advancing healthcare access for all. Um, so with this in mind, the IMS uh, Institute in India, they did a study to understand what comprises healthcare access. And in fact, um, much of what Amit has just said is also borne out by their findings. In essence, it was proximity. So today, um, more than two-thirds of all people in rural India travel more than five kilometers. What this means is that they have to take the time off to do that travel. They have to spend the money to do the travel, and they have to forego potentially that day's earnings because they are spending that day in traveling. So proximity was a big thing. And when they reach the end of the travels and uh, find, reach the facility that they're looking for, the next thing was, you know, the availability, the quality, the functionality of that facility. Um, are the doctors there? Is the x-ray equipment or the diagnostics working? And, uh, you know, what is the state of that facility? Is it going to make them potentially worse off than when they got there? Uh, right now, you know, just speaking about doctors, I think 75% of all physicians in India are uh, employed in private, uh, sort of in the private sector. They are not at these government facilities that are the cheaper ones. And I think it's at that juncture when a patient reaches there and, you know, after traveling his day, gets there and finds a broken system, I think 85% uh, or more veer away from the uh, public system and have to go to private health care. And, um, you know, then comes in the whole uh, question of affordability, not just in terms of what this costs, but what is the ability to pay. Because with 8% of uh, Indians, uh, you know, that have health insurance, clearly this is um, not a feasible solution. And uh, uh, also, uh, the out-of-pocket expenses, we already heard about that, are very high. So uh, all in all, uh, I think, uh, you know, the finding from this IMS study was, in essence, that one episode of illness which requires inpatient care is a pretty, you know, it wipes out the monthly average household expenditure. And this is across sections of the Indian public. So um, I think, uh, you know, 
I don't want to belabor a point too much because this has been said in one way, shape, or form. But clearly, these are really very serious problems that India has, and uh, I think what emerges constantly is that the biggest barrier to healthcare access is the inability to pay and the lack of financing. And um, uh, we heard this before. Uh, clearly, the solution has to be a holistic solution. I think several stakeholders have a role to play. It will be the doctors, it will be the hospitals, it will be the pharma companies, it will be the insurers, the NGOs, and of course the whole effort has to be led by government. So it can't be one single thing. It can't be, okay, let's get these Jan Osha, these stores working and we are set. Let's cap the price of medicines and we've got a solution. It has to be holistic. It has to. Uh, everyone needs to work together, and I heard Amit say that as well, and I can't stress that enough. I'm in total agreement with you, uh, Amit. So um, I think um, some work has been done. I mean, I know for a fact that OPPI has worked on a paper, and it has been presented to government on potential solutions to healthcare financing. You know, sort of models where private insurance combines with public insurance and how uh, a solution is found. So I think the thinking has been going on, but uh, then we come to the bureaucracy. What happens to this paper which gets delivered to government? Does it get read by anybody? Does it take... Uh, so the point I'm making is I think the solutions have been suggested and they are there. We don't see any uh, sort of advancement after this paper is delivered to wherever it needs to go. Um, so I think... Um, and in fact, uh, the you know I mentioned the quick fix of sort of price capping, and another study was conducted on the impact of price capping. And uh, sadly, it found that uh, far from increasing access, those that the price control regime was been has been set up for the the you know people who really can't afford those medicines are not getting those benefits. So uh, the, I think uh, clearly that is not a solution that has worked. And um, so, so all in all, it's sort of it is a broken system. And, um, you know, with this conversation, let me move just for a moment to the innovation conversation. And um, on innovation, I want to quote what uh, the Infosys chief, Narayan Murthy, said at an event at the Indian Institute of Science in Bengaluru, uh, I think a year ago. He said, no noteworthy invention, technology, or idea from India has been seen in the last 60 years. I think we would all agree in this room that uh, clearly IPR is directly linked to the level of innovation in any country. The protection of intellectual property is something that we need if we are to see innovation. And India has some work to do here. Perhaps uh, it's just a decade ago that we've signed trips, so maybe that is still a culture we are getting accustomed to. Many will say, but you know, a decade, 10 years is a very long time, 11 years actually is a very long time. But think about it. Up until then, uh, all Indian pharmaceutical companies were doing what India called reverse engineering, what much of the world today would, it would be called piracy. But this is, and this was legal, this was how uh, the pharma industry functioned. But, um, I, and today it's the Indian pharma industry who has been very comfortable in their ways, 
which is very vociferously opposing stronger uh, patent protection. I think uh, uh, one of the challenges that the Indian government has with strengthening IPR is just dealing with the domestic industry in an environment which is nothing if not nationalistic. So I think, uh, you know, I thought, let me just lay this out on the table and, uh, um, you know, I expect there will be pushback on this because these are strong words. But um, I think uh, right now the system um, is sort of leaning towards favoring domestic pharma in India. And um, uh, th there are many, many challenges in the system there. We've, so let me not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we've seen some good signs since Prime Minister Modi came in. Um, there have been conversations around IPR, uh, the protection of IPR at the highest levels among the two heads of state. There have been conversations between the ministries of commerce of the U.S. and India, and these are good things. There has been, um, we've seen the effort put in to emerge with an IPR policy, and um, I think they will, we'll still need to see how this sort of finally plays out, because uh, the policy is very broad, and then the uh, the, the, uh, I, the new IPR policy is very broad, but then how different elements are imp uh, implemented will need to be seen. Uh, I think uh, uh, right now the current reality on the ground in India is that there are many challenges in terms of ambiguity of language, the interpretation of um, you know what different elements of the Patent Act mean, uh, as also uh, the, the very fact, uh, and also this leaning, this constant uh, uh, tendency towards compulsory licensing. We haven't actually seen any new CL in the last uh, several months, but the fact that there is an interministerial committee led by the Ministry of Health, whose only mandate is to be looking for potential targets for compulsory licenses. I think that says something. So uh, it's not just about the letter. I think we need to see this in the intent. And um, uh, of course, there are other things which I'm sure will be taken up in, subs in the subsequent panel, like uh, you know the 3D hurdle, which uh, seems to violate an uh, a TRIPS requirement and also is just entirely focused on pharma and, and other challenges. So I'm going to pause there, uh, Ambassador Hakani, but uh, I, forgive me if I've repeated uh, some of the things that you've already said before, but I felt it was important to emphasize. Absolutely. These. I mean, there are certain things that emerge from what you've said. Uh, okay, so let's go first to the innovation uh, piece of the conversation. I think there's a consensus, uh, uh, you know, among the three of us at least, uh, that uh, there is a direct connection between the Indian attitude towards intellectual uh, property rights and uh, innovation, and that India would perhaps be better off uh, with clarifying its uh, stance, its position, its application of IPR uh, in India, uh, and that would perhaps help in addition to, of course, an increase in research and development uh, spending, which is very low right now. And India has to visual, so it is, it's a vision question in some cases. Does India want to remain a nation of followers or of innovators? Does it want to be a nation of reverse engineers? And, you know, the very good engineers come out of India sometimes, but basically will they only be good at applying uh, the models and the ideas that others have already invented and they just know how to 
sort of keep doing them again and again and producing them. Then, uh, Ranjana, among the points you spoke about was why has the national health policy kind of withered away? Um, and if it can't be budgeted at the level at which people asked for it, why can't it be at least uh, thought about? Uh, and that may actually be connected to the point that uh, Amit made about the Indian bureaucracy. So the Indian bureaucracy usually sees everything as can do, cannot do. Uh, more things as cannot do, but basically it's either or. It's not, okay, can we do parts of it? over a longer period of time. Now, usually because a secretary in the government serves for three years in one position, the way he's looking at it is, it's not going to happen in my three years, so therefore why should I plan ahead? And that's, you know, think, uh, think, uh, think in bigger terms. So I think the vision needs to change on that, and maybe Prime Minister Modi can be brought around to understanding and agreeing with that part of it. It's not that difficult. He is somebody who has a... Uh, a broad vision, and he needs to ink in that particular part of it. Um, we could have more discussion on Prime Minister Modi's promises and why none of them have been, but, but one part of it was, you know, the election promise of free drug services and free diagnostic services. We all know that there's no such thing as free. So somebody would have paid for it. Could the government have paid? Can any government in the world pay for one billion people's uh, 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 drugs and 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 uh, diagnostic services. It cannot, and then it has to be a market model. Then what might be a more practical market model? Uh, drug pricing, for example. We all know that uh, the problem with uh, price controls is that you control the prices, uh, and that basically serves as a disincentive for the pharmaceutical industry to invest more in producing the more difficult to produce and more expensive drugs because after all uh, the price then is not what would be optimum for their from their point of view on the one hand nobody in the international pharmaceutical sector wants to ignore a market of 1 billion but is it in a pharmaceutical company's interest to actually um, uh, invest heavily in a market that uh, fixes prices at a level in which they may not necessarily have the rate of return that they would like. Uh, you referred to the broken system, and I think that, again, if I may dig or drill deeper on the broken system, I think the, the real broken system is essentially an over-regulated economy in which uh, basically uh, a lot of um, demand exists, but supply has been, uh, shall we say, um, subjected to so much control that then it makes it difficult uh, for the average Indian to benefit from it. And, uh, and so I think we have a lot to kind of chew on. I think this may be the right time to open uh, the discussion to uh, the participants. And then towards the end, I'm going to try and bring it to both of you to say, okay, and start thinking now. Um, we've, we've laid out the problem. And I think, with all due respect to, to, to everyone in the room, I think many people have laid out the problem many, many times. So governments, we all know, cannot always handle policy change as a package in one go. They usually look for components. Can we, can we do this? Can we do that? So think of two things on innovation and two things on healthcare for the ending that may be practical and maybe doable in the short-term future, say 
within the next two years, both in terms of a legislative agenda for Prime Minister Modi and possibly a practical, pragmatic executive decision uh, agenda as well. So with that, it's open to everybody. Introduce yourselves. Uh, if you hold your hand uh, uh, sort of high enough for me to see with my failing eyesight, uh, I will point to one of the uh, young uh, members of the Hudson team to bring the microphone to you. Questions, comments, I would even say speeches as long as they are one and a half to two minutes. Yeah. Yes. Only because nobody else volunteered, but thank you. My name is John Graham, and I'm with the Health Technology Forum DC and the National Center for Policy Analysis, and I have no experience of India. Uh, I'm interested to see that the voters want, I am, get, gather from your comments, uh, free drugs, free diagnostics, and stuff like that. But are they not demanding the public health? It seems to me, if I was in that situation, I would demand sanitation rather than a lipid-lowering drug for free if the children are dying from diarrhea. So it's, is the democratic impulse getting up there properly to demand the right things from the government, if I'm framing the question right? Want to be brave enough to try and answer that one? Okay, uh, I'll have a go. Um, so, um, actually, the Indian Prime Minister has, uh, uh, you know, set a good deal of focus on sanitation and uh, cleanliness and, you know, clean water, making various states open defecation-free zones, etc. So I think there is work going on. And I think these uh, free drugs or free... Uh, uh, sort of diagnostics, it was not so much as an, I, I mentioned it not because it was an ask from people, but it was in the manifesto of the uh, government when they came in. And uh, just for a moment, let me, uh, just pausing for a moment of free. Free uh, isn't necessarily free as in, um, you know, it falls out of the sky, but let me uh, put it this way. Uh, clearly, there is has to be robust procurement policies in the states. I say the states because uh, uh, in India, uh, healthcare is a state subject. So each of the states, uh, and some of them are doing a good job. Uh, for example, Tamil Nadu, uh, and Amit mentioned a couple others, they are, have got a robust procurement system where they are able to procure drugs at very low co costs because uh, once uh, a company knows uh, that uh, they have to, uh, th that uh, there's an assured volume demand, that they don't have to spend money on marketing, that they can even save money on packaging, they are able to procure these drugs at more reasonable prices. So uh, I think, you know, to come back to your question, uh, it, uh, it, it will take a little bit of effort everything, but uh, certainly the government of India is already uh, heavily focused, and the Prime Minister himself is leading the uh, efforts around, uh, you know, sanitation and cleanliness and so on. And I think there's even an effort to try and, uh, 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 Mr. Grant, there's even an effort at, at trying to, to kind of create a new sort of culture, uh, because, you know, everybody's talked about how Indians uh, or large numbers of Indians have a tendency to sort of defecate in public or use sort of, you know, don't have a sense of that it's something that has to be done in the loo and not uh, along the road. Um, I think there's a serious effort on that score as well of trying to create a new culture in which uh, sort of, you know, people get, so it's like 
to put it uh, in 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 the language of late night uh, comedy shows it's like a, na- a national potty training program is also uh, is also in place right now uh, to try and change all of that and that's all positive i think that that must be appreciated uh, the young lady there yeah good afternoon um Professor Misbah-Sadiq with the Department of Life Sciences in East Los Angeles Community College. Uh, to piggyback off of uh, the gentleman's question, um, having discussed uh, the idea of complete sanitation, is there a concern, an immediate concern for re-emerging infectious diseases similar to cholera, diphtheria, uh, typhoid, you know, that have uh, opened up in some of the provinces that we do see sort of the uh, waterborne diseases reemerging. And so what is the impact that the Modi administration would like to gather their resources and hone in uh, more of uh, the first responders to sort of get to the, the, uh, the, the, the real, the major concern of virus-laden diseases? Sure. I think, uh, you know, like, it's a very pertinent question, but the, f- the first thing we need to appreciate from a point of view of India is that they're actually looking at this problem in a very deeper way. Uh, I can tell you that the project that we are doing with uh, Niti Aayog, uh, and what we are really trying to do now is that we are trying to measure all these issues, and from a very distinct number point of view for all states and districts under the Social Progress Index. And we are trying to cre- create a uh, what I call a monthly or a yearly kind of a uh, process wherein we are able to understand what's happening. Uh, having said that, I think these solutions, like when you talk about sanitation or whatever, if I know what is the uh, situation of water or issues of vector-borne diseases and whatever, and if I actually talk about sanitation and how this is really panning out, can I actually compel the private sector to actually invest the CSR budgets as well? So today, for the first time in the context, we are actually looking at it at a district level or what you would call as a county level and trying to understand it and then trying to tell the corporate sector as well to really push out and say that you invest here. Because I think the government also does recognize that all the solutions that we are really looking at cannot just be done by the government. It has to be a combination of social objectives and economic objectives coming together. Uh, because India is such a huge country. Like Government does not have the money to really do everything and anything. Uh, or So what you really need to do is that you need to create solutions there. And that is what they're really compelling people. In fact, just a very simple number. The unlocking of the amount of money that actually happened because of CSR law was close to about $3.5 billion. That, that roughly is about 25,000 crore rupees. And if I actually look at 542 districts in the country, and if I invest uh, as a country, and if we invest close to 5 crores in each of the districts, they can actually become open defecation-free. So that's the kind of amount that is required. So that means in one single year, if the effort is concentrated enough, and it is good, then you can actually make the country open defecation-free itself. Uh, and I think it's not about potty training also. I think it's about access to those yeah. uh, sure. things. Both. I think it's, uh, so it is more about access. Like So today they have built the toilets, and you can actually find that. And if I'm able to do it, I think most of the vector-borne diseases can also be taken care of. Because right now it is actually going through the way processes. So I, I think it is going to be set right. Uh, but I think the jury is going to be, should be out in the next five years. It's, uh, but I think it will happen in the next five years, and I'm positively inclined towards it. I think this is for the first time. I feel proud that the government is actually doing something in some re- relevant part uh, and doing something which is very 
looks very gross, like it, it can be uh, what I call part of that fun element and uh, you can make jokes about it, but it's important that they're doing it. And in any case, once access is provided, then obviously no one has an excuse. Uh, so therefore, basically, access is the main, main, main matter. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially, especially in smaller uh, towns and villages and stuff like that. Uh, yes. Denise Leonard, OHSL. Um, about four years ago, the IMF did a major paper on fiscal space related to healthcare in emerging markets and in the developed countries. And in the case of countries like India and China, they basically said they could, fiscally, they could, without any trouble, increase by four times their ex uh, government expenditures or public sector expenditures on health without causing any problems. And the government of India has chosen not to do that. And I think this becomes an advocacy problem and a political will problem as well. With respect to innovation, I think there's lots of innovation going on on service provision in the NGOs and in the private sector, but they're not being scaled up. Part of the reason they're not being scaled up is because of lack of funds. Another thing is the division between private and public and when when um, when a large portion of your population can't afford private health care. So my question is the argument, the argument at the macro level of why this country should be focusing on health care. What are the, why is, you know, so much money being spent on defense, for example. Um, once you start educating these people, then if these children start dying, then you've lost your investment in education. Uh, I mean, there's a whole series of arguments that can be made, not just with respect to the loss in life and dailies, but, you know, that why these, this is a, a sound investment for the government to make, at least with respect to the public health side. I, I think India, no doubt, is going to have to have a, a private public health care system. It's not going to be 100% private, but clearly understanding what the public sector is going to do and building that program over a period of time. Um, it's not, other countries have done it, and I just don't see the the real strong political will to carve out that money that they could easily be found in the in the budget to do quite a bit. Yeah, yeah so um, I, I think um, everything that you've said uh, is, uh, I have to agree with everything that you've said. Um, to begin with, in terms of the money uh, that is spent, I have to tell you today, the uh, health budget, such as it is, often gets returned at the end of our financial year because it is unspent. So it's not only a question of allocating the budget, it is about the Ministry of Health having the ability and the thought to deploy that allocation. So uh, uh, I, I think, uh, um, you know, clearly there is a problem with... Uh, you, what to do with it? It's it's more than just the money. My, you know, the quick response is it's, it has to be more than just the money. And as far as priority goes, I mean, there are some um, sectors that have been declared formally as priority sectors. For example, infrastructure. Others, health and education are not do not enjoy that priority status for some reason. And indeed, uh, the point that needs to be made to the government of India, and we try to do it, and I'm sure others, is that it is not 
to be seen as an expense that is to be incurred. It is an investment, just as in any other priority sector, an investment to be made. And you mentioned uh, defense and others, so there are many Indians who also have the same questions. Um, yeah. uh, try and sort of explain to us yeah. why allocations that are already made are not utilized. After all, it, se it would seem to me that there should be uh, a demand for the health services. It already exists. So why are ministries of health uh, in the various states as well as at the federal level unable to utilize resources that are already allocated to them, as you pointed out, or at least the budgets that are already allocated? Could it also be a bureaucratic little finagle in which, you know, the resources are allocated but not delivered on time? I mean, I know I'm familiar with that because I come from uh, I, come, I, I come from civilizational India myself, you know. I mean, Pakistan and Bangladesh may be separate countries, but civilizationally, uh, 5,000 years of being together makes you think a certain way and act a certain way. So, uh, so there, that happens a lot. It's, it's part of the budget. It's allocated to you, but it's not available to you at a certain time. So therefore, you don't spend it, and at the end of the year, you, somebody gets to say, it wasn't spent. Is that what's happening there? Very often that's the okay. case, that by the time the funds are released, it's at the end of the year, and then you are scrambling, and then the budget period is... So we have to, to we have to have a 10-day conference yeah. on how to deal with Indian bureaucracy on its own. So, that's, oh, yeah. I, I think... Can I answer that? Yeah, please. I mean, part of it is the government's budget is going primarily to the private sector, public sector, and the public sector is constrained and also inefficient. Uh -huh. I mean, this is where the jump in the bureaucracy has to go, that far more funds are available to private sector, both for-profit and not-for-profit, to provide services so that those monies are spent by people who are able to spend them. It means you have to regulate and you have to monitor for quality because there's been lots of problems with that but that's also a way of expanding who can actually provide services and making sure that they happen right uh, funding that innovation i think this can happen once uh, the money that is being allocated is spent i, I think it, it, the biggest problem or the burden is from the bureaucratic side actually as you say and why does it happen i, I feel bureaucracy is the most incestuous uh, uh, industry in the world from a, a whole thinking point of view. They, they just do not have that new thinking. They don't have the vision or whatever. They might like to think that they have vision, but they are the set of people. I always say uh, there is a Ramanujam theorem which says like the sum total of all numbers from 0 to infinity is minus 1 by 12. Uh, that's exactly what happens with Indian bureaucracy. The sum total of their IQ is minus 1 by 12. Uh, uh, so that's so. how do you change that? How do you push it forward in terms of th making them thinking new and be, do away with their incestuous ideas? Because they're just talking about the same set of ideas. Look at solutions from a fresher perspective. And I think this is where what you said, we have to actually look at training the bureaucracy in a different way, make that thinking differently. That was a question that was asked, and you do that. The thinking, the thinking is essentially we are uh, the custodians of the government, of the state, and we basically need to keep things okay. And innovation is not our responsibility. That's, 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 that's the sub... Yes. That's the sum total of the... Of the that's why it's a steel framework, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like steel, it cannot be flexible. And, and, and that's what it is. Look, we are coming up to kind of uh, time constraints because we have a second panel. So if anybody has a question, 
uh, or a shorter comment, do it right now, and then we'll move on to the second panel. Yes, right here, right in front. So I'll make that the last comment slash question, and then we can move on to the second panel. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Connor Harrington from USTR. Just a quick question for Dr. Kapoor. You mentioned earlier uh, the importance of state-level innovation efforts and IP in particular. I'm just curious if you could explain more, um, particularly in light of the ambassador's comment about the uh, difference between central and state responsibilities over IPR. Yeah. So, you know, that's a very important thing. Uh, when you talk about, uh, I'll agree with the ambassador that you have to have the overarching IP uh, regime in the system or in the country. But what the states can do is that, like, as all the states have the state investment policy or industrial policy, we can actually look at an IP policy there so that it is enabling or enables the environment to set it right. Uh, I think there are four states right now which are working on it, uh, and the mandate is that all of the states are actually going to have their own IP policy. So what, and I think it's very important to understand that the government is now saying that each state should understand its own innovation ecosystem and try to build it. Uh, so the steps are there for in that direction. It is just going to be, it's going to take time for us to really get there. I, I think the conversations have just now started. And in terms of like really moving an elephant like India, it's going to take about a decade or so. Uh, but I think the intention is right, and we are moving into that direction. So the regulatory framework will still come from the central government, but other incentives for yes. innovation and application of the intellectual property rights in manners in which it would be beneficial uh, would, would would devolve to the state. That's probably what Dr. Kapoor's point. So now the final thing that I had requested both of you, two ideas in both respective fields, image it so that action ideas. What can the Modi government do in the next two years in healthcare, in light of what you already said, and in innovation? Dr. Kapoor first. Oh, uh, I think uh, in innovation, I think they should, one, focus on uh, educational institutions, increase the budget on research, uh, let these people collaborate with the industry. Uh, I think uh, that's the biggest thing. Uh, the second thing, they're already doing the startup thing. We need to focus on uh, moving from job seeking to job uh, creation behavior. That is there. In terms of healthcare, I would rather think uh, they should be uh, remove market distortions. Let more open market solutions come through. Let, let uh, what do you call private sector enterprise come and bring the solutions because we know that the public sector is burdened and it cannot do it. So start easing out and removing your market distortions. Good. Uh, so, um, um, uh, yeah, in terms of innovation, I think um, um, the first step is uh, to disband a committee, which is, um, and this is a very easy thing to do, you disband a committee whose only function in life is to look for potential compulsory licensing of drugs. Uh, so I think that's a big one. The other one uh, is sort of, uh, um, you know, an innovative idea, not necessarily to do with IPR. Uh, uh, Narayan Shetty, the chief of Narayan Hidale, uh Devi Shetty, sorry, he had uh, once suggested, just in terms of insurance, he said, what if you added one rupee, or I don't know, there was a certain amount, a very small amount, five rupee, to every phone bill every month. Almost everyone has a mobile phone. And he said if this could be treated sort of like an insurance premium, he made a calculation as to how this would uh, be able to support an, uh, just basic health care for everyone. Kind of a universal health care yeah. system funded by a one rupee cess on everybody's mobile phone. Yeah, so it's like a premium. And so, so I think it's worth exploring. The point I want to make is not necessarily the Devi Shetty idea, but to uh, on this idea to see
see what could be uh, done where people sort of pay because we don't have a culture of insurance pay and we clearly know that financing of you know out of pocket is a big one the ability to pay so this is the two ideas i had on innovation and in terms of just healthcare uh, i'm going to cheat a little bit and maybe suggest three quick things um, the first one is um, you know give this sector priority status uh, it's an easy thing to do second thing i would say is review maybe remove all taxes on drugs today the taxes on drugs are higher than government spend on drugs this can't make sense so remove taxes and um, um, and so basically actually the mechanism for maintaining more affordable drugs would yes. be not to fix prices but to actually withdraw taxes that's what you're saying yeah, yeah. so so that uh, you know don't tax this thing and the third thing was uh, that make uh, what about picking up the uh, examples of the good procurement policies which are really effective in some states and replicating them in others and the, you know maybe you can do it by way of creating a competition between states where the winner gets some you know incentive something like that because there are some good models think of that incentive is the next step uh, well really i meant is that use the model which is working well and replicate it okay well i think uh, all in all a pretty good and interesting discussion uh, i have to pass the mantle on to uh, the moderator for the next panel thank you all for being with us and don't go because the next panel is about to start which is going to be uh, on official uh, on specific initiatives of the private sector uh, within the rubric of innovation and healthcare in india thank you very much uh, dr amit kapoor and ranjana thank you, sir thank you and welcome to the second panel which will address uh, specific initiatives in the field of healthcare and innovation. Uh, my name is uh, Jerry Norris. I'm a senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute. We have uh, three uh, very uh, highly qualified panel members uh, this afternoon. The first will be Kevin Walker. Kevin is executive director of the Partnership to Fight Chronic Diseases. He is currently a partner at Penn Quarter Partners, a lobbying group based here in Washington, D.C. Before that, he was managing director at Global Advocacy Partners and the vice president of external affairs at Pharma. He also served in leader positions at Goldman Harris and the Paul Worth Associates. Kevin? if you'd like that. Good morning, and uh, thank you uh, for hosting this event today. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the rising costs in healthcare, and in my job, I have the opportunity to uh, travel around the world, and oftentimes, I think we have problems with the deck, and oftentimes uh, when, we, uh, when we meet with different organizations, um, whether it be in Mexico or South Africa or Japan, China, India, uh, people talk about what's real, what they believe is driving healthcare. And obviously, people, the, the issue of cost is on the, probably the tip of everyone's mind. Prices are too high. Doctors are practicing defensive medicine. Our consumers overuse services. And this, this takes place here in the United States. This takes place in India. This takes place around the world. 
Uh, but what we know is it's actually the increased prevalence of chronic disease. So you have more people with more diseases around the world. And in the United States, it's about 86, 86 cents of every dollar <coughs> of the million dollars we spend in healthcare is spent managing people with chronic disease. And we projected this out over the next, or next 14 years through 2030. And if you look at the numbers, taking into account productivity, we're going to, chronic diseases will cost the United States about $45 trillion. Uh, that's no different in low- and middle-income countries. It's the number one cause of death in these countries. In low- and middle-income countries, it's about 75% of the deaths with a significant price tag associated with it. When you look at India, it's about 60% of the deaths. It's not they have fewer chronic diseases. They just have uh, more communicable diseases that they're dealing with. And it's a significant cost in this country as well. As you look at what's killing Indians uh, specifically by diseases, cardiovascular disease, far and away, the number one cause of death in India. Uh, and for anyone who's been looking at the news lately, respiratory disease is uh, rapidly climbing. With the burning of the clops and the fireworks from Diwali, uh, I, I think I saw such statistic recently that, that in places like Delhi, the amount of pollution is 10 to 20 times what WHO standards are. So it's a significant, uh, significant issue. And you might remember a New York Times reporter, Gardner Harris, moved his family to India and I believe stayed there about a year or so and ended up moving back after his children developed respiratory illnesses. So the impact in India, uh, in India is significant. There's a significant societal impact. Uh, it, the cost to society, a significant health impact. Again, the number one cause of death and a significant economic impact. Uh, we talked a little bit about this, the, the low uh, public uh, spending on health care. Uh, India ranks among the bottom five globally. Um, so my organization is the Partnership to Fight Chronic Disease. We are an organization based here in Washington, D.C. We do operate all over the world. Uh, we are an umbrella organization. We're made up of about 120 groups here domestically. That includes everybody from the pharmaceutical industry, to the insurance industry, to AARP, to doctor groups, to universities, to patient groups, across the board. We heard on our last panel about the need to bring everybody together, and that's what we've been trying to do over the past seven years, bring all of the stakeholders together to address the number one cause of death in, this, in, this, in the world. Um, we've replicated this model uh, globally. Uh, we've been active in India for about seven years. Um, uh, quite active in India for about seven years. In uh, South Africa, we've been engaged working with the government, uh, screening seven million people in that country uh, for cardiovascular disease and diabetes in Turkey, in China. Um, unfortunately, the, the problems with uh, chronic non-communicable disease exist everywhere in the world. So uh, we heard a little bit about the health policy. Uh, about two years ago, in a series of meetings with the government, we were asked by the Minister of Health to convene a group of uh, stakeholders to identify some policy recommendations, uh, which we did over the course of about 18 months. Uh, they were adopted by uh, the Minister of Health and adopted into the policy uh, that unfortunately has uh, not taken off. Um, we, our approach uh, as we uh, moved forward in the country of India was not to do uh, advocacy in India how advocacy is traditionally conducted, but to take a model more of the United States. So how can we, how can we liaise and build um, 
a dialogue or momentum with the stakeholders impacting the government? How can we work with the government directly? And how can we leverage the media? We've had hundreds and hundreds of pieces in the media to try to get the dialogue around health care. As we talk about innovations today, innovations, we're more focused on innovations in policy, particularly in India. So we talked, so as I mentioned, we had 150 experts, and we had some key facets of our health recommendations to the Minister of Health. These might not seem like innovative things to you all, but in a country like India, they can be groundbreaking. Simple things like focus on the patient and not on the disease. They might treat somebody with diabetes, but not treat a patient who has multiple comorbidities. So someone who comes in with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and mental health issues. How do we focus on treating the whole patient? We heard some about financing. A public, a multi-payer financing system is incredibly important in a country like India. As we heard, they're not going to be able to fund it publicly. We've encountered some unique challenges on advancing these goals. Just level setting what a multi-payer financing system means. From the most elementary level, it was not understood in India. So this is the document that we released in New Delhi last year around this time. It's a great fanfare with the government, with WHO, and throughout the media. There are key recommendations in here that focus on three core areas. I'm sorry you can't see them from here, but they are available on our website, fightchronicdisease.org. They focus on three areas, policy and surveillance, strengthening of the health care system, and health care financing. And so as I wrap up here, where we are now, since there has not been a lot of progress in the national health plan, we're working with NITI IOG, who many of you may know is a government think tank. And they've been charged by the Modi administration to set forth to create a vision document for the country moving forward. And it's to be a 30-year vision document, or at least through 2030. So we're working with a number of other organizations, including Public Health Foundation of India, the World Bank, the Gates Foundation, the WHO, to really lay out a plan for the country moving forward. Again, without continued advocacy, these recommendations will be no different than the health plan. It will be a document that sits on a shelf somewhere and never gets implemented. We have seen a great deal more interest, a great deal more momentum, a great deal more willingness to be solutions-oriented in India. But there's going to still need to be a lot of coordination among the NGOs and amongst the people in this room to move the ball forward. So with that, I'll turn over the floor. Thank you, Kevin. For the past 40 years or so of development assistance from groups like the World Bank and USAID and the World Health Organization, everything was targeted on infectious diseases. And now, according to the World Health Organization, by the year 2020, which is just around the corner, leading killer in the developing world will be cancer. And I wonder if Kevin might have some idea what agencies are doing to gear up to fight to deal with chronic diseases like cancer. 
in, in India or domestically? Yeah, or? All around, wherever you're working. Uh, well, so it's obviously a significant issue in this country that uh, many are trying to raise awareness of both, ad of both addressing the issue of cancer and supporting initiatives to focus on the prevention of the disease. Um, one of our, the primary tenets of our organization is it's going to be a whole heck of a lot less expensive to prevent these diseases than it may be to treat them. But what we can also do is figure out ways to better, better manage these uh, diseases around the world. Okay, thanks. Our next uh, speaker uh, to my uh, left in, in, in the middle of, of the three chairs there, Amy Loy, is the Associate Vice President for International Advocacy at Pharma here in Washington. She has previously worked at Avalier Health, a leading healthcare advisory company dedicated to business strategy and public policy and also contributed to research work at the Institute of Medicine here in Washington, D.C. Amy, please. Great. So I wanted to talk today um, about an issue that I think is right in the crosshairs of the topic of conversation today, advancing innovation in healthcare. Um, so an issue that's right at the crosshairs of advancing innovation in healthcare, um, not a specific initiative, but a larger policy issue which is clinical trials. So the advancement of clinical trials um, is a perfect example of how we can advance innovation and healthcare simultaneously. Now the Indian government has put the life sciences sector um, as a strategic, or strategic sector in many of its initiatives and priorities which it's announced over the last several years. The Make in India initiative includes pharmaceuticals, Startup India includes pharmaceuticals, Digital India includes life sciences, other data issues that are very important to the life sciences industry. And even the national IPR policy of course talks about uh, creative India, innovative India. Then the biopharmaceutical industry across the globe spends roughly about $140 billion annually on global research and development. And many people wonder, you know, what does that entail? Where does that money go? What's it spent on? Well, 60% of the R&D spending goes towards clinical trials. It's a huge component of the money that's invested to advance science and bring new medicines to the market. Um, so why are clinical trials such an important component of this? So they're important, of course, for um, the reason that I think most people understand, which is the advancement of science. Clinical trials are critical to bringing new medicines to market because once we've identified a new compound or a molecule or a protein and we think that it may be effective, you have to test it. You have to make sure that it's safe for people to consume. You have to make sure that it does what we hope and expect it will do. And that is a very well-controlled, very time-intensive process that um, often involves adherence to international standards and making sure that we understand uh, what we're testing and what the science tells us in the collection of data to understand that. Clinical trials are also extremely important for patients. For a number of patients, this means early access to new medicines. It means access to 
new treatments, to new medical care, to highly trained professionals, and to learning about their disease and accessing better health care. It's also important, again, for patients because through clinical trials, many times we learn new things that we didn't otherwise know about medicine, such as new indications or other uses or side effects that could be really critical for patients as we bring new medicines to the market. Uh, clinical trials are also really important for economies, and I think this is an interesting component that is less talked about when we talk about the advancement of, of clinical trials in the science, where when you have clinical trials in a country, in a city, in a local healthcare center, there is an entire industry that surrounds the clinical trial process. It brings in financial inflows to hospitals through inf infrastructure improvements, payments to doctors, to consultants who are helping to collect data, to run the clinical trials, and an entire industry that is fueled by the process of advancing what we think of usually as a scientific experiment. So there are tremendous benefits there. There's also benefits for the government through tax collection. When you have payments that are going, the government benefits through um, that uh, process, as well as the opportunity for partnerships. Anytime you have a huge effort moving forward, there are often efficiencies, other sets of intelligence and knowledge that you might not have that you have an opportunity to reach out, find another company, another institute, another medical center to take that forward through the clinical trial process. So what does this look like in India? Currently, India is um, home to about 16% of the world's population, 20% uh, of the global disease burden. We've heard a lot about that this morning already. Yet only 3% of global R&D spending and less than 2% of global clinical trials. And this, you can see in the chart here that India hosts about two clinical trials per million population, which is a um, a scale that is often used to look at these numbers, which is the lowest rate among the BRICS and nearly the bottom of some of the other Asian countries. So I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking, Amy, India is a huge country. They've got lots of scientists. They've got great hospitals, really smart people. So you know, there seems this seems like it's a strange data point and that this would be much, much higher given we know that the potential that, that India already has. They also have a very robust pharmaceutical industry, and so some people might often think that these numbers should be much, much higher. Um, I agree. I think these numbers should be much, much higher, and there's a lot of great potential in India to be a leader in the global development of medicines and other life sciences. But unfortunately, over the last few years, there's been a very tumultuous policy environment for clinical trials in India. Making decisions about where to host these clinical trials requires a tremendous amount of predictability. If you're going to bring something that is a scientific process that requires a lot of global compliance, you're trying to sync with other trial sites in other countries, and requires a tremendous amount of money, you want to know that when you bring that trial to a country, that the environment is going to look relatively more or less the same for the number of years that you're going to be conducting that clinical trial. And in India, over the last several years, there's been a lot of policy change 
in the framework for the approval and conduct of clinical trials. Some good. The Indian government has made a tremendous effort, I think, to bring clarity to some elements of the clinical trial policy framework to provide better protections to patients around the informed consent process, which is good. They've also made some changes to guidelines around how patients are treated if they suffer an adverse event during a clinical trial. And in the process of doing this, they've made other changes, um, some good, some, some bad, of course, that have just created a lot of uncertainty. And so I think there's a tremendous opportunity here, and I think here there is a lot of political will moving forward to make the necessary changes to create a predictable and transparent framework around clinical trials in India. If this were to happen, we talked about the tremendous potential that India has, uh, there could be some real amazing benefits that India might realize. Um, an economist did some modeling to look at what the actual benefits would be to India. And if India were to address outstanding concerns with clinical trials regulations, estimates suggest that they could see an increase in the number of new clinical trials per year to above 800. And to give you some perspective, um, I think last year there were less than 100 clinical trials approved in India. So this is a dramatic increase than where we see right now, given the uncertainty in the framework. And again, if India were to address the outstanding concerns in the policy framework, they could see over $600 million in direct um, economic and indirect economic gains as a result of clinical trials as, due to all of the other benefits and surrounding um, atmospheric and ecosystem changes that you see related to clinical trials. So again, a, not a specific initiative as some of the panelists have talked about, but a real opportunity to advance innovation in healthcare in India, um, where I do think that there could be some great improvements in the very short future to see um, greater life sciences drug development in India. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Amy. And now on my um, very uh, far left, uh, we have Jeffrey Hamilton. Jeff is the Senior Director of International Public Affairs at Pfizer <coughs> Pharmaceuticals. Before that, he serves as the Director of U.S. Public Policy at Daichi Sanko. He has also served as the Manager of Business Strategy, the Associate Director of Economics and Industrial Policy, and Director of Global Public Policy. And lastly, Charge of Corporate Responsibility at Merck, Merck Pharmaceuticals. Uh, Jeff. Thank you. So um, I'm going to, uh, let's just get my slide here, give a specific uh, <laughs> okay. I, I work in the pharmaceutical business, so we always have slides. That's just the way we do things. <laughs> Great. Great. Thank you. So, um, I'm going to talk about a specific example of what we're doing in India, what Pfizer's doing in India, and hopefully uh, can illustrate some of the opportunities uh, in this space in innovation. So, you know, Pfizer sees India as a powerhouse for healthcare innovation. 
And, um, you know, there's been some tremendous um, uh, opportunities here uh, to advance a culture of an ownership society or in the culture of, of property ownership. And um, with the government working on and understanding the value of innovation and how that can actually advance India's economy and um, as well as their healthcare system, uh, things like working on the national IPR policy um, can help accelerate innovation and, um, and of course, um, advance the economy of India. And then it also can translate to helping a specific industry that is very important to the Indian economy, which is the pharmaceutical industry. So we have a specific program um, called the IIT Delhi Innovation and IP Program, and I will get to that in a second. Um, but first, I want to give a little bit of a background on how we got to that. And we're going to first, I'll talk about um, the CSR provision under Section 135, um, how we at Pfizer look at corporate social responsibility, um, and then we'll get, I'll talk a little bit about IIT Delhi. So, um, in the previous Congress party government, there was a provision that was passed uh, under Section 135. Um, that actually required all companies of a certain size to spend um, money on corporate responsibility activities. Um, and so at least 2% of the average net profits made during the three preceding financial years was the requirement to actually have companies spend. And this is both uh, multinational corporations as well as Indian companies. So. We looked at it and said, okay, what's the impact in Pfizer? And we, um, in, the, in this current fiscal year, we have to spend at least $1.2 on CSR activities. Um, and last year was about $1 million. So what are those activities? There is a Schedule 7 that says that indicate activities can be undertaken by a company under CSR. So we look at what does Pfizer look at when we do corporate social responsibility? First thing is we want to promote access to quality health care. We want to be partners to the government um, as well as other stakeholders. We want to nurture innovation, support community involvement by our colleagues and our employees, and uh, create goodwill for Pfizer in India. So when, you, when we look at the uh, uh, considerations for our focus areas, some examples are some qualifying activities that we look at under the Schedule 7 are promoting healthcare and sanitation, which has been mentioned before, um, technology development, disaster relief, women's empowerment, um, environmental sustainability. And we have um, our own business priorities. We want to enhance the value of innovation and IP. We want to advance the salience of product portfolio and we'd like to strengthen our relationship with the, um, with the government and with healthcare providers. So um, the government's priorities are uh, preventive medicine, um, positive health information, uh, public-private coalitions around disease awareness, access to healthcare, um, sanitation and health, as we said, and uh, make in India, which is, of course, a big um, uh, advancement in for the for the uh, in, for the economy, 
And what we are already doing is we're already doing CME programs. We do advisory boards. We have patient assistant programs. We do capacity building. We do disease awareness. And we thought, well, what can we do that actually lines up with what the, what the government is? And that's these focus areas. One, encourage and support Indian innovation and Indian IP with a focus on healthcare. Undertake awareness and access programs in partnership with the, the very robust NGO groups in, in India, um, with a, as well as a focus on women and children. Um, three, we want to support national and state programs, uh, priorities with high linkages in healthcare enlist employees as volunteers, and persist and continue to support national disaster relief. So we decided that we do all those other things and don't have time to get into all those. I'm going to focus on IIT Delhi. Um, and here's the key strategic example. So this program, the Pfizer IIT Innovation IP program, is, supports healthcare innovations through funding resources and expertise and infrastructure that allows innovators to bring their healthcare ideas to the marketplace. Um, we have two components. One is to be um, the, a way for companies to um, have an incubation accelerator and be able to work with um, IIT Delhi, which is a pre premier um, institute of um, technology in, in, in India, and they have this organization called FIT, which is the Foundation for Industrial Transfer and Technology. And um, that part of the program is where the folks that can actually, um, the, 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 the young, the students or the entrepreneurs can actually get funding and um, be able to sit in um, IIT Delhi and be able to work on their, their, their idea to advance healthcare. And then also access the, the professors at IIT Delhi, as well as Pfizer experts. Then we have a second component where the innovators um, who already have a proof of concept can, um, can look for um, IP support to actually get their product um, uh, to get it, it uh, patented. So the initial unencumbered funding is we have a commitment of up to $80,000 um, for each innovator uh, to provide innovators with the residencies for up to two years at, at IIT Delhi and support the incubation from the beginning stages through prototyping through go-to-market. Um, and then publish communications and, and we have a system where we publish that um, in the newspapers, et cetera, to reach out to possible entrepreneurs and in many cases the university communities to say, what are your ideas in healthcare? and you can apply for this funding. Um, we've had a tremendous response, and where we show this is that we, again, we have unencumbered funding for up to 50 locks, which is roughly $80,000. We're gonna be doing four projects under resident incubation per year, and, we're, and then 10 projects up for the IP filing services, which are a little more advanced, and they're, they already have the proof of concept on those, those ideas. So we just launched this um, about a year ago, and we already had 75 applications um, from across the country for this phase one launch. And um, we've received quite a bit of visibility among key stakeholders. And in fact, um, 
We had Secretary Amitad Kant, when he was heading DIPP, come and give an opening speech about this program. And he thought it was a great opportunity to advance Startup Stand Up India as an example. Um, and the nice thing is, since we've now put out the first set of funding, um, DIPP now has actually done a, a very um, specific endorsement of the program where we can actually utilize DIPP's seal of approval, et cetera, on our materials and things like that. Um, so the second phase of the program was launched in September and where our first initial grants were, were given out. And so here's, here's five examples. Um, two of them are for in the, in the resident incubation area. One is um, a program for early diagnosis of typhoid. Um, and it's a portable uh, device. Um, and um, the, 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 the patient can actually get the results within six hours to find out whether or not um, this, um, they have typhoid. And this is going to be really, really important to advance healthcare in rural and hard to reach areas. Um, second one is a novel wearable device for protection of respiratory hazards. And as we talked about uh, how the, the, the pollution problem, this is something that we think was going to really advance as well. Um, the three programs for the IP filing support, which had already been advanced, one is a, a bioactive nanofiber, which is uh, going to be used in orthopedic and craniofacial um, uh, clinical practices and surgery. Um, the second one is this multi-board upper extremity workstation for patients who um, um, are, are stroke patients and going through rehabilitation. And then the third is a green manufacturing um, intermediary process. Um, so again, we're working with these folks to get um, these types of ideas brought to patentability and then help, hopefully at one point there will be opportunities for these to become um, businesses. And um, Pfizer has no um, ownership of any of the intellectual property here. It's purely for the individuals and the, comp the startup companies that are, that are um, putting these pro ideas together. And so here's some just some great um, pictures. Um, here's the group of the endonasal purification device. The second one is the uh, uh, typhoid uh, group. Um, and then these three patient uh, pictures are of the um, under IP support, the bioactive nanofiber, the green manufacturing in the bottom there, and the multi-board. And um, the nice thing about um, this program is that not only are we getting these uh, ideas brought to Indian society, but it really is promoting grassroots innovation. And that's the bottom line. And there's a lot of opportunity to advance grassroots innovation, which will actually ultimately, again, weave into the fabric that ownership society, which will in, in turn, we think, actually help advance the life sciences um, across the country, which will benefit not only our industry, the multinational pharmaceutical industry, but will also benefit the Indian uh, life sciences industry and ultimately benefit patients. And so Prime Minister Modi, we were able to, um, this is our director of public affairs, and this really was his brainchild um, in Pfizer India, and, and he had an opportunity to showcase this with Prime Minister Modi, who really, really liked it. So we're really pleased with this positive partnership. Um, and um, we're looking forward to carrying it forward and sustaining it and keeping it going. Um, and I'd be happy to entertain any questions. Thank you.
Thank you, Jeff. The uh, <clears throat> civil society uh, group called uh, Doctors Without Borders uh, has designated uh, India as pharmacy to the developing world. And India currently supplies just in the area of AIDS. 80% of all the AIDS therapies are going into Africa. But now with the rise of chronic diseases, how will India respond in terms of the demand in the developing world for chronic disease therapies? Will it uh, do it through compulsory licenses? Will it do it through joint ventures? Maybe Jeff or Amy could give us some indication how the pharma members will respond to this issue in India. Sure. I can give one example. Um, so Pfizer does everything we can to bring our innovative medicines to the marketplace in India, and including in chronic diseases. And cancer was one that was mentioned before. Um, so what we have done is we are working, we've actually accelerated one of our key cancer products um, uh, called Ibrance, and it's called uh, Palbase in India. Um, we actually accelerated it to the point where India was in the top five countries in the world where we launched this medicine. And in fact, today it was just approved by, um, by the European, Medical Agent, European Medicines Agency in, in Europe. So India brought it to market faster than in um, Europe. And, you know, innovation is one of the ways to bring other health-related um, resources to the table and to the country. And, and yet it's very expensive, too. And so we also have um, our older portfolio of, of medicines in cancer, for example, available at prices that are dramatically lower than some of those innovative. So we have different types of medicines available um, for across the country. But if there are patients who absolutely can only take the, um, the, the, most, the newest, most innovative medicines, we have ways of getting those medicines to patients um, at either dramatically lower prices through a shared uh, financing uh, process, as well as for free for those who are absolutely destitute. One of the challenges is, um, getting those resources um, and getting the right diagnosis and treatments. It's getting the physicians uh, uh, to the, those poorer populations. And um, it's a challenge that we're working on in a project we, that we've actually called Project ECHO, which is in the breast cancer space, where we're teaming up with the regional cancer centers um, in three select states. One's Madhya Pradesh, one's in Assam, and one is in Telangana. Um, where we're going out to very rural or below-poverty districts to actually bring capacity-building um, uh, awareness of, of breast cancer uh, and training of local ASHA workers, um, and, and then bringing mammogram machines out to uh, these rural areas to actually do that diagnosis. So it's, 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 it's a multifold problem. Um, and, and, and getting the resources out to some of these rural areas that was discussed at the previous panel is a, is a real problem. And so we want to work with the state governments to figure out solutions to how can we make it sustainable, how can the states help get those health care solutions out to some of those rural or, um, or poor areas. Okay. 
Amy? So I would just add that, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the growing burden of disease, of chronic disease, and there's still a, a fair amount of infectious disease in the world that we need to treat and, um, and tend to. And that problem is going to continue to be there with us. And, you know, Jerry, you rightly point out the, um, you know, the, the Indian pharmaceutical industry and the role that they can play there. And I think that there is a certainly a huge role and a huge demand that there will be for those products as we across the globe look to treat more and more patients with disease. But I also think, you know, we don't have all of the treatments that we need on the planet right now. Alzheimer's is a huge challenge. We all know somebody who's facing Alzheimer's right now. If anybody's ever known anybody that has had ALS, a huge challenge that there aren't good treatments for right now. And so we have to continue to advance the science and invest in new treatments, um, better treatments to treat diseases that we're facing today and that we don't have treatments for. And for that, we have to have these two industries work streams, if you will, working together simultaneously. So I don't think it's, you know, a, a one or the other. I really think that we need to create an ecosystem and a partnership and work together to make sure that we're advancing good, generic, safe, quality medicines to people who we need them through healthcare systems that can get medicines to people who need them and making sure that we're looking for new treatments for people who need them and don't have them. And that requires a supportive environment to do that. Okay. Well, uh, when India was designated as pharmacy to the uh, developing world, uh, it was principally because of its uh, production of antiretroviral medicines for the developing world. And it became pharmacy to the developing world without once having to use a compulsory license to do so. But currently on chronic diseases in, in India, uh, one in cancer, one in cardiovascular diseases, uh, Indian firms are producing under government authorization uh, chronic disease uh, therapies, basically infringing on the patents. And while the Indian courts have accepted the case cases for adjudication, they allow the companies to continue producing chronic disease therapies in the meantime. So is this, an, maybe Jeff, is this an indication that uh, the, the government is going to continue with government authorization instead of trying to encourage companies to do joint ventures? with firms that are part of pharma? So it's a very good question. Um, I would say, actually, the interesting thing is there hasn't been a compulsory license in, in quite a while. I don't remember the exact amount of time frame. It's been, yeah, since 2012. So it's, it's it actually has, it, there has been a turnaround. And the new government realizes that um, compulsory license is not the solution to uh, increasing access to medicine. And then, if anything, it's it's detrimental to increasing access because um, the companies um, aren't necessarily providing those those uh, drugs that they got that compulsory license are at a cost you know at a lower cost in India. Um, they're really doing it just for their own commercial enhancement, and it's not actually increasing access. Um, 
with the, 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 the government has really made a concerted effort to show and demonstrate that they are committed to, um, to intellectual property protection and how that can promote innovation and at the same time promote the, the economy in, in, in India. And they realize that they have a tremendous uh, base of, of their own domestic industry and that going back to the joint venture opportunities, there are plenty of opportunities to do more joint ventures for companies to bring um, their innovative medicines and their innovative portfolio to India, maybe at for a price that makes sense for India. Mm -hmm. And then also, um, in the case of Gilead, for example, they gave a, um, they licensed out um, to an Indian pharmaceutical company so they could actually pr provide one of their more expensive medicines to places like Sub-Saharan Africa at a, at a, at a cheaper price. So there, there, there are different opportunities um, to structure deals that make sense that are win-win-win. Okay. Let's have a, uh, a question period. Let's have a question period. <laughs> there we go, right there, please. Hi, hi. Uh, I'm, I'm Rabat. Uh, you know me. Um, I was noting in the news fairly recently that uh, the uh, government is floating a proposal actually that would um, lengthen a certain rule that would, in essence, provide some form of a data exclusivity, a rule that's now at around four years, that they would extend it up to 10 years. And I was wondering your thoughts on uh, the motivation behind this and why they might be uh, proposing this at this time. So my understanding, so the root of this issue is what's determined and what um, the definition of a new drug is in India. So if you bring a new drug to India right now, the current rules say that it's only a new drug for four years. But we know that in practice, new medicines that are covered under patents are oftentimes, um, the patent life is much longer than four years. And so often this can create challenges in the enforcement of patents that companies have already received from the Indian Patent Office. So they've applied, the Patent Office says, yes, you're deserving of a patent and they've granted it. But because of this definitional issue, there are some challenges there that can lead to enforcement issues. I don't know the motivation of why um, this is going through the Technical Advisory Board right now in the Ministry of Health. It's certainly something that's been raised in a number of conversations. But you know, the, the national IPR policy talks about um, one, looking for opportunities to strengthen India's intellectual property rules, but also kind of looking at um, areas where there are ambiguities between different sets of rules in India. And, you know, as we look at the rules, this is certainly one where there's some unpredictability for companies in India and perhaps an opportunity where there could be a little bit more um, reliability in the system that's put in place. Any, any other questions, please? Back in the room, please. My name is um, Libby Wright, and I work for Citizens Against Government Waste. I, maybe I should have asked this in the first panel, but I think I can ask it here, is that there's been a lot of talk about the bureaucracy and just dealing with the bureaucracy. And, of course, in the United States or here in Washington, there are lots of groups like mine from the left, the right side, many who 
promote property rights, many who focus in, as we do, on, on the bureaucracy and sort of call out the waste and try to put pressure on the bureaucracy to, to change its, its ways. I'm just curious, um, and maybe it's just the nature of, of the difference in our governments, um, are there any groups like that that are in India that, that sort of focus um, on the bureaucracy or trying to change things, promote property rights, um, and, and put pressure on uh, on their um, elected officials to um, basically uh, uh, change the government and, and make it work for the people. So and, yeah. I would just comment and two things. One, you see a lot of this in India come um, through the court system in the in the shape of public interest litigation, um, challenging different rules and whatnot. So it kind of takes different forms from different groups. But interestingly enough, the new national IP policy, um, as one of its priorities right out the gate in the implementation, has put awareness um, around the benefits of intellectual property protection of things like copyright and trademark as a uh, the first pillar and a very significant priority in the implementation. So you're almost seeing kind of the opposite of what you're talking about from the grassroots up, which very much exists, and there are a lot of academics and think tanks and individuals um, who are very concerned with this issue and working to advance a school of thought around it. But now the government has really embraced the idea of trying to talk about the benefits of um, intellectual property protection broadly and, and take that message out to universities, to various conferences and academic workshops that are, talk to, that are happening to talk about why they've put forward the IP policy and what they hope India will benefit from the implementation of the policy. And if I could add to that, um, it's very interesting. In some ways, it's also the opposite, too, is that the government, um, under this organization, the Niti Aayog, who's, who's this government think tank, actually looking at ways to cut out some um, uh, waste. And one example is, and actually put more some more free market thinking into it, and that's, um, one is restructuring the National Pharmaceutical Pricing Authority, the NPPA, which is the organization that actually sets price controls for essential medicines. And they're looking to actually do away with that and realize that if there's more of a, uh, of a free market thinking, then you can actually um, uh, promote more innovation and actually better ways to keep prices lower through competition and, and, and through efficiency. So it's interesting that's actually coming from the government and there are NGOs out there that are actually advocating, no, we want the price controls. And so uh, the f more, there's not a lot of free market NGOs out there that I, that I have seen. And I don't know if Amit Kapoor could maybe uh, make a comment on that, but it'd be great if more came out if, if they existed and had a voice in, in this discussion. Back room, please. Uh, thank you. John Graham from the National Center for Policy Analysis and the Health Technology Forum, D.C. And I, I, my question also has to do with, I think, something Dr. Kapoor mentioned in the first panel. I think this panel could could uh, help me understand better. I think he mentioned university and industry cooperation or words to that effect. I mean, are, do we need a kind of a Bay Dole Act in India or something like that? Yes, actually that, that's something that um, we have encouraged and, and in fact that, that there, there was draft legislation of a type of Bay Dole Act that existed in a couple of years ago, three or four years ago even, 
And this is something that we are, again, looking at and trying to encourage um, because it, it would be important because there is innovation happening. And uh, Dr. Poor had said something about there's not enough innovation coming out of the universities and maybe because um, there's not a way or an opportunity to create an ownership and, and create a new company or business out of that. Yes, of course. Uh, I think there are two things here. When you talk about university system and not performing, uh, either there are not enough incentives that actually exist there, and they're very hugely politically motivated at points in time, like uh, the whole university system, how it operates. It seems to be just getting embedded in some kind of thinking, which is probably not focusing on academic output and so on and so forth. And there is no incentive for academic output. But having said that, but then uh, for the Bayh-Dole Act, I think there is a very huge debate that it is going to happen, and there were indications to that effect, and I can certainly tell you that it is going to uh, be looked at very seriously in the next few few uh, years itself or even the next few months. For, and that is what I learned from Niti Aayog and the work that we are actually doing with them. Uh, in terms of, say, the bureaucracy and how it has to be uh, looking at or whatever, uh, there are many initiatives that the government is looking at. Niti is also looking at it. In fact, the other uh, institution that the government actually does collaborate quite strongly is the Vivekananda Foundation, which is actually looking at the whole idea of how, how to really change the very uh, system. Uh, I think uh, there are some steps to it, and I think the days of career bureaucracy are going to be over in India in the next five years. In fact, if I have my way, I would uh, say that, it, uh, in fact, recently I actually said that the whole bureaucratic setup is actually anti-competitive, and there is a compelling reason to believe it is anti-competitive. Uh, so how do we change that as well? So there is a proposition of that sort as well. So let, let's see how this whole debate goes, but then this is an ensuing debate, and we should be in a position to change in the next five, ten years. Any other uh, questions, please? Actually, I have more, uh, more of a comment on the Bayh-Dole legislation idea. And, and the idea it's more of a cautionary note about be careful what you ask for. Uh, in this case, the Bayh-Dole legislation, that was what they called Bayh-Dole legislation, the, if you looked at the language, it actually opened up more opportunities for price control and marching of, marching of rights. So we, <coughs> if we are going to promote the idea of tech, more tech transfer, we need to make sure that we do it with the right spirit. And that is that they are indeed trying to encourage their academic researchers to come up with inventions that are uh, useful in the marketplace. Okay, thank you. Any further comments? Uh, with that, uh, we can conclude uh, panel number two, with thanks to our panel. Thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure and an honor for me to uh, have uh, the uh, um, acting ambassador of the United States, uh, the charge d'affaires uh, of uh, uh, India to the United States, Ambassador Taranjit Singh Sandhu, who is both a dear friend uh, at a personal level and also a friend of the Hudson Institute, uh, a distinguished uh, diplomat who has served in several uh, countries and will soon be uh, India's ambassador uh, to Sri Lanka. Uh, so Ambassador Taranjit Singh Sandhu will uh, give us his closing remarks. Thanks. Ambassador Hakani, he of course is also my, he's an expert on Sri Lanka where I'm going to be going soon. And uh, I don't know, there's Aparna, an eminent panelists and delegates, it's indeed a pleasure 
to be with all of you at this important conference on advancing innovations and healthcare in India. I'm happy to note that this is the first of the series to be hosted by the Hudson Institute. India is the third largest economy in the world with the potential to grow larger and more equitable. The 21st century India has a competent knowledge base and technology pool required to provide healthcare to her people. Yet, there are gaps in the healthcare challenges that need to be overcome. India is bubbling with innovators and its healthcare sector is no exception, as healthcare providers are embracing innovative technologies. These new ideas not only benefit India, but also provide food for thought for other countries. The bottom line for domestic research and development in India is more features for less money for more people, MLM. This is also true for healthcare as the objective is to leverage MLM to substantially lower healthcare costs with no compromise on quality and service. The access to high quality, reliable and affordable healthcare service is one of the key challenges facing the rural and semi-urban population lying at the base of the pyramid. Realizing this as a social challenge and an economic opportunity, there has been an emergence of healthcare service providers who have entrepreneur attitude and passion within the scarce resources available to design and implement innovative, cost-effective, reliable, and marketable solutions. These solutions focus on four A's, accessibility, affordability, acceptability, and awareness. India has the capacity to become a hub of healthcare innovations. The National Health Policy of 2015 underlines three kinds of innovations that can make healthcare better and cheaper. The consumer-focused, the technology-centric, the innovation business models. Consumer-focused is ways consumers buy and use healthcare. The technology-centric is to develop new products and treatments or improve existing medical technologies and the innovative business models for the horizontal and vertical integration of all healthcare stakeholders for seamless Public sector healthcare in India is inadequate. It accounts for only 22% of the total expenditure on health. India is no exception to the global trend where non-government players are active in the delivery of healthcare. There are several models in India where the not-for-profit and for-profit sectors have changed the healthcare delivery. The private healthcare industry is valued at 40 billion and is projected to grow to 280 billion by 2020. It is the most dynamic area of Indian economy. India's private sector is home to a pool of healthcare entrepreneurs who have developed inexpensive quality healthcare with local innovations 
in areas such as cardiology, eye care, maternal and child health, etc. Et Dr. Reddy's chain of care hospitals developed the Kamal Raju stent. Dr. Shetty's care model, Narayana Hirdalia, a thousand bed heart hospital with 26 operation theatres, where about 30 heart surgeries are performed daily, is an example for rural outreach. An angiogram costs $70 and a heart surgery is performed for $1,000. A cost-effective ECG machine with a software that transmits the readings through telephone lines for just $75 are exemplary cases of LMM innovations in the Indian context. Consider the model of Aureolab promoted by Arvind Eye Care System to indigenously produce the intraocular lens, importing the same technology that was used to develop intraocular lens in the United States, now available for as low as $10. The quality of lens has been tested extensively. These are models of learning discussed at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. You may be aware 21% of Indian households record out-of-pocket health spending. Illness is a common reason for falling into poverty. The poverty headcount in India would have been 3.7% in the absence of out-of-pocket payments for healthcare. Health, health insurance is another prime area for innovative solutions. Health insurance is coming to India in a big way. India and the United States have a robust cooperation in the field of health sciences. Together, they are committed to find innovative solutions for healthcare in low resource settings. Rotavac, an indigenous and most cost-effective vaccine co-developed by Department of Biotechnology and National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases under the NIH has entered world market to save lives of thousands of children each year from rotavirus. Vector-borne diseases like chikungunya, dengue, malaria, kalazar, or Zika are making an alarming comeback all across the globe. Under India-US Vaccine Action Program, the experts from both countries are collaborating to innovate for scalable cost effective solutions for universal applicability. National Institute of Research in Tuberculosis at Chennai, a center of excellence which has received support of the U.S. institutions, has infused an innovative managerial systems leading to success of revised National Tuberculosis Control Program. Multidrug resistant TB is prime focus for the collaborative research at the center. There are about 5 million HIV infected people in India and thousands need antiretrovirus therapy. The incremental innovations 
by National AIDS Control Organization and UNAIDS has made the cost of antiretroviral therapy cheapest in the world with first line treatment costing the government about $75. Antiretroviral drugs for all program in India is part of the curriculum at the Harvard School of Public Health. Cancer is emerging as a major disease in India. Under non-communicable diseases, India-US Joint Working Group, AIMS and NCI under NIH are establishing an 800-bed National Cancer Institute near India, near Delhi. At this institute, 200 beds are dedicated to research in India-specific areas. And the innovations put to use at the center will set new standards of cost optimization. Within the health technology sector, medical devices represent a two billion industry. India-US program, Stanford India Biomedical Design Program is encouraging indigenous innovation. Manu Prakash Labs, Stanford and DBT using origami foldable microscope costing 50 cents for detection of blood-borne diseases is a classic example of frugal innovations. The Department of Science and Technology and National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering under NIH are co-innovating low-cost diagnostics for hypertension and diabetes. India-US Science and Technology Endowment Fund is giving over 20 grants to bring new innovative ideas to the market with a view to promoting health and wellness. Based on the US Health Data Palooza Conference, Indian IT companies have done commendable work to provide state-of-art solutions. For example, Tata Docomo, a mobile service provider, now offers doctor-on-call services for mere 18 cents. For preventive and promotive health, Indian IT sector is developing games around localized themes to promote health awareness and health psychology. The first slate health tablet is an Android-based computer tablet designed to interface an electrocardiogram, a thermometer, and a heart rate sensor in a single device. It was designed in three months and produced at a per unit cost of $50. The slate is given to 10,000 health workers in India to use at primary healthcare centers. As India becomes more prosperous, people are becoming less tolerant of inequity and inefficiencies in healthcare. This drives policymakers, technology developers, and the healthcare industry to focus on innovations. Despite the challenges in India's healthcare system, many Experts advocate the innovative, affordable solutions for patient-focused quality care in which we learn and share best practices. I again compliment the Hudson Institute for organizing the first annual conference on India and thank you and wish you a wonderful afternoon.
thank you, uh, Ambassador Sandhu, for uh, the closing remarks this afternoon. I think we've had a good uh, sort of discussion and uh, many ideas today. Uh, and of course, uh, Ambassador Sandhu has given us a uh, Indian uh, government perspective as well on what are the accomplishments. And we've heard uh, some critique as well of where India could go. This is an ongoing dialogue, and we at Hudson hope to continue to facilitate it and to continue both in Washington and in India. But thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.